there's always this kind of like, how do I make a career? How do I get out there? And there's what we want to do. And then there's what we're supposed to do. Where are we needed? And that's been something that's really driven me for my career is like, I love doing lots of things, but where am I needed? Where am I fitting a space that I'm bringing something that's unique to that was all given to me anyway? So I feel like we don't talk about that enough. You know, it's, it's very centered on ego. Like, what do I want to do? What am I best at? And you see this a lot with people. It's like they're really good at something, but then they find this other thing that they're even better at that they didn't train at doing, but it's the place where they're really needed. Then they'll feel fulfilled in a different way. And that's how I feel. It's like, if it was all about me trying to get leading lady roles or sing solo shows or whatever, I wouldn't feel fulfilled. I would have quit. But doing the things where I feel like I'm actually doing something, that makes me feel good. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing what I'm here to do, whatever that is. That was Rhiannon Giddens. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, She Rose Radio. She Rose is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. This week's guest is a trailblazer, a musical activist, a multidisciplinary, multi-genre artist who has truly carved her own path of both honoring and celebrating lineage and creating a new one for generations to come. Now nearly two decades into her career, Rhiannon Giddens has become one of the most awe-inspiring and influential artists of our time. The journey she has been on from opera student at Oberlin College to becoming a 2023 Pulitzer Prize winning opera composer composer is far from a linear one and encompasses a multitude of artistic achievements, accolades, awards, and honors that have been accumulating since the early 2000s when Rhiannon shifted her attention from opera to the fiddle and banjo, playing in a Celtic band and reclaiming the banjo and the roots of American folk music with her Grammy-winning black string band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. After five albums with the Chocolate Drops, Rhiannon went solo and subsequently released three multi-Grammy-nominated and American award-winning albums, along with a ton more awards and critical acclaim. Too long to list here. In 2015, she put out her debut EP, Factory Girl, and full-length debut, Tomorrow Is My Turn, which paid tribute to several of her sheroes. Next came 2017's Freedom Highway, and that same year, Rhiannon was awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant. The next few years saw a meteoric rise in projects and expansion into every medium imaginable. She performed with orchestras, founded a supergroup of black women string players with Allison Russell, Layla McCalla, and Amethyst Kia called Our Native Daughters and co-produced their 2019 album Songs of Our Native Daughters for the Smithsonian Folkways label. She composed for ballet and film and Rhiannon put out two albums with Francesco Teresi, There Is No Other in 2019 and the Grammy winning 2021 album They're Calling Me Home. She appeared on the ABC hit drama Nashville and throughout Ken Burns' country music series published children's books and and she hosts her own show on PBS, My Music with Rhiannon Giddens, as well as a podcast with the Metropolitan Opera called Aria Code. And that's not even a comprehensive list. But as you'll hear today, extraordinary accomplishments is not what drives Rhiannon Giddens. From the beginning, it's been her mission to uplift and amplify those whose contributions to American musical history have been muted or erased. Now back with her third solo album and first of all original material, You're the One, which is just been nominated for a Grammy. I'm thrilled to welcome back Rhiannon Giddens into the Shiro's Spotlight. Rhiannon Giddens, I am so happy to see you. Welcome to Shiro's. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you. It's great to see you too. Um, oh my God, in these crazy times. In these crazy times. On a happier note, the last time that you and I sat down to talk about your work, it was 2019 and I was just 
incubating the idea for Shiro's. And then mm-hmm. when I launched the show in 2020, yours was the first interview that I aired. And this is part of my third anniversary celebration. So thank you for being part of that. We're here to celebrate. That's amazing. Yeah, I love it. We need all the celebratory moments we can get right now. Agreed. So let's do it. Agreed. <laughs> Congratulations on You're the One. Your first thank you. solo album in six years. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a thing. I'm very happy to have it out there. It's been a little weird because I've been in a different mode for a while, you know, and this sort of full court press and, you know, all the this on your record and glam shots and this and that. I'm just like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> but it's been fun. I have to say that I anticipated that you would say that. I did think back to our last conversation and we spent like a bunch of time talking about how you felt when people were like trying to make you up for TV. And I was like, and here she is again. And they're making her up for TV and she's getting all yeah. the press shots done. But I love the press shots. They're gorgeous. Thank you. Well, you know, at this point, I've finally found my team. You bow to the necessity of it because it's it's like I don't really want people talking about the fact that I'm not wearing makeup. I want them to talk about my music. So fine, I'll put on the makeup, but I'm going to find the person that's going to put on as little as possible so that I feel like the most like myself, you know, so I finally have those folks, you know, who are looking out for me and they're like, we want you to feel good about this stuff. And that makes all the difference. And an amazing photographer. I love Ebru. She's amazing. She's she's so great. She's so great. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about the record. So I understand that a lot of these songs have been hanging out for a while. Like I read this thing on NPR that said that this was a work in progress for 14 years. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. It's totally accurate. The oldest song, I think, is Hen in the Fox House. I remember when I was recording the demo in my house, my daughter was like a toddler and she's 14. So yeah, from about 14 years ago to about like five years ago, you know, because five years ago I started Omar. So (laughs) there were no more songs in me when I was working on the opera. So I mean, there's a couple, but not really a part of this kind of group of songs. They were protest songs. So yeah, they're a collection of songs of kind of me like exploring myself as a songwriter. The work that I valued and I have put forward in terms of my own creative work have been historically connected sort of mission-based songs, you know, songs that were inspired by enslaved narratives, you know, ephemera from the time of slavery, like, you know, American history, like deep cuts, you know, (laughs) and that's been, you know, very important part of my work, but like inhabiting those songs, you know, for the last however many years, you know, it's hard work and it's heavy work and it will burn you out. And I felt myself kind of getting there, especially Omar was a wait for five years and a lot. And I'm so grateful to have done it, but there's a lot of responsibility for that piece. And so it felt like I just needed to kind of have some fun. You know, not that that's not fun, but it's a different kind of thing. You know, it's a real thing. So just, you know, these were songs that I wrote, like some by myself, some with co-writers, you know, my friends and collaborators. And just exploring song form, celebrating some of the women that I love, that I've been inspired by. I want to write an Aretha Franklin song, you know, or something like that. So it's been really fun to kind of let them have some time in the sun. Let's start with one of those songs. And you mentioned Hen in the Fox House as being the oldest one. And I had that highlighted, of course, because of the lyrics, which immediately was like, <laughs> yeah, that's for Shiro's. <laughs> it's a feminist song. So let's start with Hen in the Fox House. I'm just going to read these lyrics out for the folks that haven't gotten to like really dive in. I'm a woman in a man's world. There ain't no change in that. And boys, they will be boys fighting over every cat. They jockey for position, stand head to head each day. But I really don't care how big it is as long as you keep it out of my way. (laughs) So good. Thank you. It's so funny. Every time I sing that line, you know, because I don't know if people know what to expect from the song when I start. And then whenever I get to that line, there's always at least three or four like feminine squeals of like, you know, yeah, (laughs) it's awesome. (laughs) I love it on so many levels. And one of them is the trope of the folk girl or the Americana girl or, you know, all these roles or archetypes that we get boxed into along the way. And so I love this for that, too, that it's kind of like, oh, she said that like shocking. (laughs) I just like I've always been very clear that I hate being put in a box. I hate 
genres, like however we need them for whatever they provide. I want to tell stories, yeah. you know, and like use the song forms. Yeah, there's different song forms. Like you can say that's a blues form. That's a whatever ballad form. But use them how I want to use them, you know, yes. and just I don't know. I just I feel like people don't really know what to do with me. And that's OK, you know. Because they try to, they want me to do this. I mean, the, the reviews of this record were very interesting. Like some people were like, super got what I was trying to do. And then some people were like, she's lost her way. Wow. <laughs> you know, our folk goddess has like, you know, gone down the Pimrose path, you know. <laughs> and it's like, okay, like, I don't owe you anything. Like, I feel like I've done enough at this point to be able to do a record just for fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. I don't know. People are funny, but that's okay. Nobody has to like the record. I, you know, I have to put it out because that's what being an artist is, is that you, you know, you explore all the different sides of you, not just the one that is the thing that people expect from you. You know, that's when you die. Yes. Is when you, you just keep doing that. Because I know that the next record will be stronger because of being able to do this. You know, I'm not going to abandon that sound and that mission, you know, but if I just stick to it, it's just going to strangle itself. So well said. You know. Yeah. Is there anything you want to tell us about this song? You kind of gave it a little bit of a setup before, but do you remember what prompted you to write this song in the first place? Is there a story here that you could share? I mean, I love wordplay. There's a lot of wordplay on this record. It, it's really tied to very old forms of American song that I've been obsessed with, you know, for a long time. But yeah, the I really don't care how big it is as long as you keep it out of my way. I mean, I don't know a woman who doesn't have <laughs> a story about that, you know, where you're just like, really, guys, can you just either just like put it back in your pants or go get a room? Like, I don't care which, but just like, <laughs> you know, can we just do this? Can we just like freaking do this right now? And, you know, being a woman in this industry, you know, in the entertainment industry, which is, you know, things are changing. But like, I mean, this was like 15 years ago, you know, sure. they change slow. And of course, it's male dominated and you're out on the road. And my band's always been dudes. And I mean, except for the one shining light of Layla McCalla. And I love my guys, but like, and it probably wasn't even from them. Like it was just you're just around men all the time, you know. And so I tend to be a songwriter that very rarely pull from one specific experience. Mm. I think this record maybe has two or three instances of like I pulled from a specific experience and then built a song around it. A lot of the other stuff is just like experiences. You know, I witness things, I read about things, I feel things, and then they kind of creep into a song. I'm not a, I woke up at six and I had some orange juice and then I, you know, I'm not that kind of writer. And those folks are great and they serve a very important purpose, but I, I'm not good at that. So I don't try to do that. You know, when I'm inspired by a personal thing, I'll do it, but it's very rare. I'm a woman in a man's world and there ain't no change in that. And boys, they will be boys fighting over every cat. The jockey for position stand head to head each day. Fox House, and that's one totally written by Rhiannon Giddens, the oldest song in this collection. You're the one. She's our guest today on Shiro's, and I'm Carmel Holt. We have so much to catch up on. You mentioned Omar, the opera that you've been working on. When I saw you last, there was the opera that was in progress. You had nearly been on Broadway. That kind of came, <laughs> fell apart, mm -hmm. but you learned to tap dance. But since then, you've put out children's books. There was a Pulitzer Prize. I think when I saw you, you had recently won the MacArthur Genius Grant. Wow. 
What do you want to tell us? Broad strokes, highlights, what the past few years have been for you, despite the fact that we were in a global pandemic, you had so much going on. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. I have to say, like, just first and foremost, I was very lucky that I was in the middle of my MacArthur when the pandemic hit. So I didn't have to worry about money coming in. You right. know, I still worked too much. <laughs> I, still, I don't know how to stop working. So I had some pandemic pivots, which is where the kids books came from and different projects. Being able to get a couple extra years to work on Omar was kind of amazing. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a time <laughs> for sure. I feel very lucky. I feel like I've been recognized by people I respect, you know, for the work that I've done. I've had amazing collaborations with people. You know, I did Omar with Michael Abels, who's an incredible film scorer and composer. And yeah, I've just had these amazing opportunities and, and I feel very blessed that they have been received in a way that makes me think I did the job that I was asked to do. You know, I never think about my work in terms of whether it was good or bad, which is why I read my reviews, because I think it's interesting. You know, is it hitting like I want it to hit? Is it reaching the people that I want it to reach? Mm. And I just remember when I was at Omar, it's been now at four different places. It's in San Francisco next few weeks. But I was in L.A. and I just saw the premiere and it was amazing. And I felt a little tap on my shoulder and I turn around. There's this little woman in a headscarf. And I like low key start to hyperventilate because I'm just like, oh, my God. Like my biggest fear was that somebody was kind of come up to me and say, like, how you treated Islam was terrible or I hated, you know, what you did right. to our religion. And that's been my biggest fear. And I've worked so hard because I didn't know anything about Islam when I started Omar. Omar is about an is Islamic scholar, a Quranic scholar who is stolen from his home in Senegal and is sold into slavery, just for people who may be wondering what the heck is Omar. <laughs> and it ends up enslaved in North Carolina for over 50 years, right? And so I wrote an opera about his life. And of course, there's a lot. He's quoting the Quran in his autobiography that he wrote in Arabic. I mean, it's just this remarkable thing. And so anyway, this felt this tap, I turn around and, and I see her and it's my, it's my moment of, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen right now. And she said, I just have one question for you. And I'm like, well, you know, so I'm start, I'm starting to sweat. I swear to God. And she said, when are you going to write Omar too? I loved it. It's amazing. <laughs> and then her son was there and he was just like, it's just so rare to see our religion treated with such respect. Mm. And it was just amazing to blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. I was like, forget the reviews, forget the whatever the words. It's like this is the moments, the moments of the black singers who are in it, you know, feeling it, feeling like what I wrote and going, this is an amazing connection for us. There's a moment where the character Julie is talking about the difference between a good master and a bad master. And she says it's like waiting to go and desperate to go to God. There's a very important difference there. And she sings, you know, I'm waiting for the time to see my Jesus. Like, is this really kind of a pure, sweet moment? And like one of the chorus members who was back in her up is like literally crying, like while she's singing. Because it. it's just like this pure moment mm. of religion, like whatever religion you're in, it doesn't matter. Like, right. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. Like when you're talking about the feeling that you have for that higher power, your moment of faith. And so to know that people are feeling that, whether they're Christian or they're Muslim, that's what I was going for. And to know that it reached that and that it did that, that to me is success. Like whatever accolades it gets, whether it's in the canon, whether people do it after, you know, May of 2025, doesn't matter. It has reached people in that way. And so it's just like when I think about my work, that's what I'm looking for, you know. And so the accolades are great and I appreciate them. And it means that people who are my peers are saying, good job, you know, keep going. Like that means a lot to me for sure. But I'm more concerned overall with the people that the work is reaching, you know, and is it doing the job that I wrote it to do? So that has been an amazing, because there's a lot of fear when you release something that big out into the world, that it's going to be a disaster, <laughs> you know, or people are going to be like, what were you thinking? That was terrible. And yeah, so that's been a real blessing. Because I put all of my heart and soul into that opera, like everything I had. So the next record had to be, it was just great that I had these songs kind of sitting around waiting, you know, for the right time. Because it meant I could just put that down. I could put Omar down. I could put the slave songs down for a second and not have to make anything new and go, these guys need some tender love and care. They need to be out in the world. And so it was just the perfect timing. You know, I just needed the turn. Sorry, that was really, I didn't, you didn't ask any of that. And I just went there, but th that's where I, it's just as a creator to see somebody, to see somebody responding to your work 
in a way that touches their own sense of their religion is incredible. And the opportunity to witness that is also incredible. So, yeah, I feel like I'm carrying that in now with me wherever I go. It's so interesting, too, how long ago you were working on this and planning this and whatever, even going back to 9-11, how much hatred there's been for Muslim people here. And now we have this situation in the Middle East and so much division, so much hatred, so much anger. And it's so fascinating to think about people going to see this opera right now. You couldn't have known, right? No. And I think... I think that the point of all of this, the point of learning somebody else's hard story is to connect it to your own and to see their humanity, right? So you have these enslaved people and it doesn't matter what religion they are. They're all in the same position, Yes, you know? So there's a moment where Omar is praying the way that he prays and Julie is praying the way that she prays. And, and it's like, you don't want to say like, oh, none of it matters. It's all, I mean, like to the people whose religion it is, it does matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in terms of how do we see each other? How do we connect to each other? And so like for me, the knowledge of history is so important because you go far enough back and everybody's had these experiences, right? Some more than others, <laughs> for sure. But, and that's what frustrates me about the dialogue around, like say what's happening right now is that people don't know the history. And they also conflate things, you know, extremists is not everybody, right? That's why we call them extremists. It's because they're extreme. That means that the majority is not like that. And that's the thing is that we are mixing things up. And so to tell a story like Omar gives people an opportunity to say, this is a person who had so much faith that he was able to maintain that faith for, uh, during 50 years of slavery, mm. like 50 years. Jesus. It's incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. Yeah. You know, 37, he was sold into slavery, 37 years old. Like, it's just, you know, so to trying to connect, which is why, you know, I don't know, I despair the current climate of the toxicity in our discourse. And I think that art is really kind of all we have left because we're not being taught critical thinking. We're not being taught, you know, how to have an argument with somebody without calling them names or conflating them with, you know, a group that whatever has done a terrible thing. So art, I feel like, is one of those things that can reach people, you know, in a neutral place, because that's the job, I think, of music and dance and visuals and sculpture and all that stuff is to, is to touch that emotional piece that everybody shares, no matter what, no matter what. Because if we can't see our humanity, then that's where things go wrong, is when we're, we're not seeing each other's humanity. And I don't know. Good Lord Almighty. I know. This feels like a good moment to talk about another wasted life. Yeah. Speaking of humanity, right? Speaking of inhumanity. Yeah. So to give, again, our listeners some context, while this album has some very fun and light moments and love and sassiness, you still come with this song that just punches you in the gut about, like you said, humanity, lack of humanity. And you co-wrote this with B. Beeman, who is like... So near and dear to my heart. What a wonderful, wonderful person and songwriter. Talk to us about Another Wasted Life. Talk to us about how you connected with B. Oh, I mean, I've known B for a while now. And this was a time where we were kind of writing some stuff together. And he opened a bunch of my shows. And we did a tour with Layla McCalla. I just really respect what he does. And I love his voice. And I had gotten, this happens to me a lot. I get like 80% of the way <laughs> in a song and I just need somebody to get me to the finish line, yeah, yeah. you know, because I often write the words first. And then if I don't want it to sound like a, you know, 19th century ballad on the banjo, <laughs> then I need help. So, you know, he helped me kind of bring this home, which was great. It was, you know, a song that I wrote after hearing about a young man named Khalif Browder, who is who was a teenager who was put into the system, an innocent teenager. I mean, I don't even want to go into the whole thing, but he ended up in Rikers. I mean, he wasn't even convicted of a crime. You know what I'm saying? But he ended up in Rikers. And um, two years of the three he was in Rikers, he was in solitary confinement, which is like people don't understand how bad that is. You know, solitary confinement is like it should be classified as a torture because we can't handle it. Like, it's just not we can't handle half an hour in the dark. You know what I mean? Like, let alone 
two years. So anyway, he was finally released because he was innocent and they hadn't really made a case against him anyway. And when he got back into the world, he just couldn't handle it and he committed suicide. And I don't know, it just devastated me on so many different levels so that I just had to write the song. Like, and it's very rare that I do that. I did it with Build a House. I did it with Julie. And so, so they're kind of my, the songs that are closest to me, you know, is that I just kind of sit down and I have to go... Phew. And then I go, B, come here, help me finish the song. You know what I mean? And I put it away. I just put it away. And so when this record, we started coalescing, I was like, oh, you know, it is me. I have to have this song in it. It'll keep me going because I, you know, I'm having fun, but I'm also like, uh, if I had to do this all the time, I would just quit. You know what I mean? It's like, I have to have something that I'm fighting for. That's just me. And so this is my focus. You know, if we're going to do a video, it's going to be for another waste of life. If we're going on a TV show, it's for another waste of life. You know what I mean? And so that's just given me kind of a North Star with this record. It's like, all right, I'll do all this other stuff if you give me another waste of life, you know? So we've been working with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project and raising awareness. Made a video with 22 exonerated men that the Pennsylvania Project had freed. Between them, 500 years they spent in prison. Between those 22 innocent men. 500 years between the 22 of them. And so they volunteered to be in this video that I wanted to center them and their, you know, their faces, their lives, their humanity. You know, I talked to folks just to make sure we we had a real kind of like, how do we do this in a way that has input from people who have been inside who can say this is, you know, we want to also, there needs to be some sun. There needs to be, you know what I mean? Like people are celebrating their lives once they get out, you know, but they're all part of the project. They all said, you know, for the guys who are still inside, you know, for the innocent, there's thousands of innocent men and women who are still in prison because whoever wanted the case closed or witnesses lied because they were pressured or whatever. There's like a litany of reasons. And once you get in, it's very hard to get out. Even if you've been proven innocent, there is a a man who once they exonerated him, it still took him 14 more years. Whoa. To get out of prison. Whoa. He was in prison for a total of 28 years. It's Chester Holman. He was in prison for 28 years. 14 of those after they had proven him innocent. Like, it's just bananas. People don't understand how once that door closes behind you, man, it's really tough. It's really tough to get because it's not designed to get you out. It's designed to keep you in. It is not designed to help you become a better person. That system is designed to keep you in, you know. Because it's like a lot of places, it's for profit. It's And also we, we have turned into a society that is not looking for systemic change, just looking for scapegoats. You know, well, as long as we lock these dudes up, you know, we can feel better about ourselves. Anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. But I've been focused on this thing because it's very clear. And it's what I wrote the song about. But, you know, overall, we have such an overhaul that we need for our system. Because it's like people think it's been this way forever and it hasn't. You know, the numbers of people in jail went up like crazy in the 80s. Like it's not that long ago. Like and that's because of all the different policy changes. And again, a whole nother topic, but it offers the opportunity to talk about these things, to shed a light on the carceral system, which is, you know, as an outgrowth of slavery in a lot of ways. So a different way of looking at things. And because it's the only song that's really mission based on the record, it kind of does hit you in a different way than something like Freedom Highways. The whole thing is like, you know, dealing with these things. But this is like, you know, it's like do, 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 and boof. Another day, another youth. Another story, mango truth. The commentary uncouth and full of clouds. Doesn't matter what the crime If indeed there was this time He's given solitary time Institutional The torture of the soul, the narrow confines of control, thrown down the stinking hole with no hope of release. It's just another. Just another 
Another Wasted Life, co-written with B. Beeman. Rhiannon Giddens is our guest today on Shiro's, and You're the One is the new album, her first solo record in six years. I'm Carmel Holt. We were just talking about this song, which is like a gut punch. You also mentioned earlier how you wanted to celebrate some of the women that you were influenced by in music. You mentioned Aretha. I know Nina Simone is a big one for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and why that was important and how that found its way into this collection of songs? Yeah, it's always been important to me. It's like, I don't know if it's because I started an opera and folk music, which is very, very concerned about lineage. You know, it's like, you think about the singers that came before you, you think about the composer that wrote the song, you're not generating it, you're kind of expressing it. And then when you get to folk music, it's like, you know, where did you learn this from? Who did they learn it from? Like, where did it come from? There's this idea of always putting things in context. So I always think of myself as a singer in terms of a continuum. Who did I learn from? Because nobody, no matter what they say, nobody's coming up with this stuff, like out of thin air, right? We're all a product of what we grew up listening to. It all has sunk into our bones. And some people are just more innovative in how they recombine it and put it out. So I think that it's nice to pay homage to people. And like I did it with my first solo record. This is kind of like coming back around, but like in a spiral, you know? So it's like my first solo record was all covers of women that I admire. And this is all originals, a lot of them inspired by women that I admire. So there's a Dolly Parton song, there's an Aretha Franklin song, you know, Another Wasted Life, pretty much the vocals came out when I was performing them in the studio. And it was like, oh, there's Nina. Okay. (laughs) You know, I had not planned on singing it that way. And just, I don't know, it was just like, there's video of it. I was just like, and, you know, crouched in the corner singing. I'm always wanting to pay homage because like, I wouldn't be where I am without those ladies, like blazing the way in so many different ways. So when I sat down and wrote the words to too little, too late, too bad, I was like, ah, this is Aretha. Like, you know, I wanted to write something that not necessarily that she would sing, but like, just but like, hey, I love you. And this is my response. And that I wrote with Dirk Powell, you know, because he's a huge Aretha fan too. I was like, here's some words. What are you thinking? He was like, yeah, let's do it. And so he wrote the tune and it was great. See you on your knees as I go walking by. Too Late, Too Bad is how the album opens. Rhiannon Giddens' new one is You're the One. She's with us on Shiro's. And I'm Carmel Holt. And we were talking about lineage and how you pay homage to some of your Shiro's in this album. And I was like, wow, you know, you've done so much in your career so far for kicking down doors and representing and visibility and inspiring I'm sure so many women, especially. What have you encountered in terms of feedback or any women that you feel like are seeing you as part of their continuum? I mean, I'm sure there are. It's like I always feel weird when I hear things like that, because in my brain, I'm still like 23 and, (laughs) you know, completely useless. I don't know when that's going to change. But I think the clearest moment I had in that, because now I'm starting to see it. You know, I'm starting to see it. And, you know, we were at Carnegie Hall. It was with the Our Native Daughters, which is a kind of a super group that I put together to make a record for the Smithsonian Folkways label, Allison Russell, Layla McCalla, and Amethyst Kia. And Amethyst, who I had discovered on a YouTube video, like seeing the song, and I had her like open for me and, you know, just kind of started the relationship there. And she started talking to open the song that she was leading and like said something about like when I saw the chocolate drops and I was just like, oh my God. And that's when it hit me. I'm like on stage thinking I'm in her bio. Like, you know what I mean? Like her story of how she became who she is, like the Carolina chocolate drops are in that story. And it's just like, I was like, oh, 
we did it. You know what I mean? Like that's all we were hoping for was to then, you know, be that link in the chain because when when the chocolate drops, my first band, all, all black string band with Dom Flemons and Justin Robinson, we were taking the music of Joe Thompson, who was like an 86 year old black elder, you know, whose family hadn't picked up his music. And so we were just like, well, we seem to be it. You know, it's not like there were, weren't other black people doing it. There weren't a lot, but there were a few. But we were kind of like the only ones in the position. We were young. We graduated college. We didn't have families yet. We had time to go sit with Joe. You know, we were just in the generational, that moment, that the right time, right place. And so we carried his music on. You know, and then this generation that's come up in the last like five years is just amazing. You know, Jake Blunt and Amethyst and Kaya Cater, who I first met as like a 13 year old banjo prodigy in Canada. And they're all like when I saw the Carolina Chocolate Drops, you know, and that just feels amazing. It feels amazing to know that, you know, we did our job, which was we filled the gap because there was a danger that that was going to go. And we just happen to be there and we happen to all have the same mission of like, we need to be here for the people who are, you know, we were hoping that there would be more around earlier, but like it takes time. Yeah. It takes time. And to see it happening now, you know, there is all this activity happening in like the black string band world or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, there's a new black string band that just debuted at IBMA with Jake and Kaya and, and Trey. And I'm just like, oh, it makes me feel old, but it makes me feel good. So. You know, I'm really happy because, you know, who came before you is important, but you always have to be thinking about who's coming behind Behind you. You know, yes. Am I being a good ancestor? Like, am I honoring my ancestors and am I being a good ancestor? So if we're not doing both of those things concurrently, then we're not living life right. That's just, you know, it's the same with the earth. We're obviously not doing that very well as a species, but you know, it's like honoring what came before and honoring what's going to come after you. So you don't burn it all behind you because that's where ego lives. So true. So no, it's, it's been great. <laughs> it's been great to see it. I'm like, yeah. Whenever I see an article about the banjo and black people and they don't contact me, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes. They got shake. <laughs> they got, you know, there's other people yeah. who know this stuff better than me who are out there. I was like, I held this space for a while. I was like the go-to And I was like, all right, I'm here until I'm not needed, you know, because it shouldn't be like I hold all the answers. I'm like here with what I've learned from other people. And then, hey, yes, go talk to Jake. Awesome. You know, it's very exciting. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, it's wild to also be in this time to see what's happening in Americana and in country music and with the Black Opry. Look, I was like too early. I was too early, you know, when I was in Nashville. No, come on. I feel like none of this would have happened without that. Well, again, like, I feel like I had my place, you know, I was a placeholder. It was like, okay, I'll come and do Americana again. Like, you know what I mean? Because there were so many people who just needed the support. They needed the time for it to become a space that was welcoming, you know? And so I got frustrated because I did feel like a token. I was, you know, literally just going to say that. Yeah. And I would come do it, not really knowing, like, I know Jed much better now, but back then I was like, I don't know what this is doing. I don't know what they're doing. I know they're trying. And so because they're trying, I will come do this thing. I will do it my way. You know, I'm going to sing my slave song. I'm going to do my whatever, play my minstrel tune. But like, I'm going to do it because I'm not sure who else is doing this. Right. And so I'm like, if these guys are really trying, I will hold place here. I will hold place here for people like, you know, Alison Russell's like queen. Like, you know what I mean? And there's now a community there. There's mm-hmm. her, there's Sister Strings, there's all these people. And Brandy Carlisle has exploded and all this stuff is happening. And there is a community that wasn't there when I was there. It was a different kind of community. And, and I left, you know, because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I think maybe I've done something by holding the space. And now I'm going to go live in Ireland because that's, you know, that's where my kids need to grow up because then they can be Irish and also American and all this kind of stuff. I wasn't running away, but it was just more like, I don't know if this is, you know, I wanted to do the ballet and, you know, so it just, I left at the time I needed to leave and it's just been really fun to watch it. I'm a little sad sometimes. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah, because I miss all the stuff, you know, that's happening now. They're having all of this fun. <laughs> I mean, also Nashville is going through horrible things as well. So I'm not sure I'm missing that. But, you know, just in terms of the camaraderie and, you know, I've just kind of been used to just being on my own. Yeah. Because of like the chocolate drops was just, 
you know, we're just used to being the only black people in the space. And I'm so glad that that's not the case anymore. I'm so glad. But I do kind of go, oh, you know, but like the universe doesn't ask you what you want. You know what I mean? The universe puts you where you're needed to be. Mm. And I'm proud of the work that I've done. And I'm like, look, I'm, I have a great life. I'm not complaining, but it's just, you know, it's a good feeling. You know, it's kind of like, but like bitter, have it, bittersweet. It's incredible. bittersweet. Yeah, it's a little bit. It's a little bittersweet, you know. Yeah. But I'm so happy that it's happening. And I'm so happy that whatever small part I had to play in it, I feel very honored to have been a part of the story, you know, because it is it's, it's happening and it's fabulous. And the, you know? the next thing that I want to hear is that you are no longer called or tokenized to be the voice for black women in opera or in classical music or in ballet or any of these <laughs> other spaces that also are still overwhelmingly white and male. You know, I see the same thing happening in composition that's happening in Americana. It's like, you're seeing more and more composers of color and they're sort of forming communities. And that's the beautiful thing. And that's the thing about Americana, which I think is a bigger change and a bigger disruption, mm -hmm. you know, is that people of color have brought in this idea of the community. Not to say that community didn't exist before, but almost an aggressive community. Like we're going to support each other, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't like there was an article that came out that was pretty much pitting me versus Allison. Like she's good. She's bad. Here are the reasons. And we were all like, nope, not happening. Can't do it. And we actually he had to take it down. It was like a fairly well-known critic and, you know, like a actual news magazine or something. And there was so much uproar because we we're like, this is what happens, you know, is like, let's, let's divide these people up and like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, there's legit criticism. And then there's your hatchet jobs, whether you know, you're doing it or not, it's really devised to separate communities. And we were all just like, nope, <laughs> not happening. I'm like, mm -mm. I was like, that's beautiful because the industry is all about competition. The industry is all about who's the best top 10, this who won the award. It's all competition. And like, we're all kind of existing within that because that's what you kind of have to do in the industry just to survive. But like, we're also fighting it where we can. And so it's all about let's cross post each other. Let's support each other. You know, you know and Allison's been a hugely forward in front of that, this idea of the Rainbow Coalition and being a safe space for people. And so it's just great to see that. And I'm seeing it in the opera world, too. I'm seeing it, you know, with these composers who are getting opportunities to write black stories and who are like kind of banding together and going, hey, we're going to draw strength from each other. And so it's really beautiful to see. I never expected to. <laughs> be where I am in the operatic world is quoted my open letter to this classical station in North Carolina was like quoted in the New York Times. <laughs> I was just like, what's going on right now? I don't know how this happened. So I'm just kind of like bemused by it all. And I'm just following where I'm led as usual and just trying to be a voice for a composer that doesn't write music. The person who likes opera, who just discovered it at 25, you know, or 35 or 45, the black person who walks into an opera house and sees themselves on stage and gets really excited. You know, these are the aspects of that world that have been not really supported. It was like the fact that I was asked to write an opera and, you know, I brought in somebody who can write dots, you know, but like the fact that we were able to collaborate and that people received that and it wasn't like, oh, that's weird. You're, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's trying to stand for the people who aren't talked about. And just in general, it's not about being a person of color so much as it's being like somebody who is outside of the usual, you know, totally. operatic world, you know, and just standing for that and going, yeah, I wrote this on banjo. Yes. <laughs> the orchestra is representing banjo. Yes, it is. You know what I mean? And that's what we need. If you want opera to survive, that's what we need. And it's the same with Americana or whatever you want to call it. It's like it was going down this path of strangulation of like, we've heard these sounds. We've heard this story. You know, we need a diversity of voices at the table because that's what America is for better or for worse. And all the best American music has come out of that idea of people cheek by jowl for whatever reason, but they're creating together and making this music that then takes over the world. So we're just all poor together. <laughs> you know, that's what we never talk about. Right. It's like all the poor, it was all the poor people making this shit. You know, it wasn't like the people on high didn't make rock and roll. You know what I mean? So it's just kind of like thinking about all of that and just trying to represent, you know, I guess that's all I'm just trying to represent. I just think about like your own personal story. I just think about like your Oberlin days and conservatory and like the stories that you told about, you know, being completely outnumbered and the teacher confusing your name with your class mates and just like the whole 
whole thing. And I just thought like, it's so amazing to think kind of full circle to that, like where you are now and like the journey that you've taken that now encompasses all these parts. I mean, my life is just like last week, for example, I was in New York and it was for the Pulitzer Prize ceremony mm-hmm. was in Columbia University last week. And I wasn't supposed to be in New York. I was supposed to be in Ireland. And so it was a hard decision. But I was like, I'm going to come over first because it's like, when is this going to happen again? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so we built a little four day week around it. And so Tuesday I was in The Daily Show singing Another Wasted Life. And then I was at the Pulitzer's accepting a Pulitzer for my opera. And then I was hosting the Mets HD performance of Dead Man Walking. And then I went home and I was just like, this is the life that I want because this is who I am. It's all of these things together. Mm. You know, it's contextualizing, it's writing, it's performing, it's being an activist, it's being a historian. You know what I mean? And so I kind of go, wow, okay, I guess I did it. Whatever I was trying, I didn't know what the heck I was trying to do. I'm doing it. And, you know, maybe it means that I never have a, a billboard hit. You know, maybe it means that I'll never be on the nighttime Grammys. Maybe it means that I'll never get to do another TV show or get to ever be on Broadway. Maybe I don't get to do those things, but the things that I'm doing are pretty fulfilling. And, you know, there's always room for those things. If anybody, you know, I'll act any day. It's fun. (laughs) You know, I'm not closing those doors, but I'm just saying, you know, as I was talking to some kids, I, I did a masterclass yesterday at UL. I'm artist in residence at the University of Limerick. And uh, there's always this kind of like, what do I do? How do I make a career? How do I get out there? And for me, it's always about like, there's what we want to do. And then there's what we're supposed to do, you know, is where are we needed? Where are we needed? And that's, I feel like that's been something that's really driven me so much for my career is like, I love doing lots of things, but where am I needed? Where am I fitting a space that I'm bringing something that's unique to that I don't own that was all given to me anyway. So I feel like we don't talk about that enough. You know, it's it's very centered on ego. Like, what do I want to do? What am I best at? Like, actually, and you see this a lot with people. It's like they're really good at something, but then they find this other thing that they're even better at that they didn't train at doing. But it's the place where they're really needed and they fill this thing and then they'll feel fulfilled in a different way. And that's how I feel. It's like. If it was all about me trying to get leading lady roles or sing solo shows or whatever, I wouldn't feel fulfilled. I would have quit, you know, but doing the things where I feel like I'm actually doing something, whatever it is, that makes me feel good, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm doing what I'm here to do, whatever that is. I don't know. It's a funny thing. God damn, you're speaking my language. Thank you. (laughs) Rhiannon Giddens, before we wrap it up, I could almost end it there like mic drop, just like end it right there. But before I let you go, I close every episode by giving my guests the Shiro's magic wand. I asked my guests to make a wish what you would do if you had the wand to change anything in the music world, in the music industry, for women, for queer folks. What would you change? First wave of the wand. I know it's probably a long list. (laughs) Well, you know... I would make it so that art wasn't an integral part of the capitalist system, because I think that drives a lot of what's wrong with art is the fact that we have to fit it into this competitive money making profit driven system. And it's just antithetical, I think, to what we do. And we make art in spite of not because of we make art in spite of that situation. So that that would be my first just overall just completely change the system, you know, and then of course I would just love to see everyone feel welcome at the table. Yeah. I feel like art should lead the charge in seeing people as humans first and what they wear and what they identify as second, you know, but we get caught up in the same crap as the society at large. So I'd like to see more of that. I mean, there is a lot of really positive stuff going on, but there's a lot of still really rough stuff, which kind of a lot of times goes right back to that capitalist system and patriarchal system that art belongs to. So I'm always just like, can we just get the money out of it? (laughs) Can we just like give artists a paying a living wage and then just let us make art? Because that's our job. It's crazy. It's a good wish. Do you have a song that you would like to close with? Um, I mean... Yet to be is 
that was my bunny rate moment, but also my moment of optimism, my rare moment of optimism, <laughs> thinking about how far we've come. Ironically, we're also trying to tear away all of those things that we've gained. But anyway, yet to be. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, it's a real up-tempo kind of rocker. So, And this one features Jason Isbell. It does. It's the only feature on the record. And the story is about an Irish boy and a black girl. And the opening tune is this little Irish tune that was made up on the spot by my guitarist who's from the Congo, but who has lived in Ireland forever, 15 years, wow. I'd say. He's got kids and stuff. And so it's just like, that to me is, is everything. It's like, he's lived in Ireland so long, he can make an Irish tune, but he's also like carrying this whole lineage of Congolese guitar <laughs> playing, you know, because he's from the Congo. That to me is catnip. I love that when that happens. Anyway, so that song is all about mixing. The real things that make America great. <laughs> she was born on a farm. Working the clay, she ran off when she was 16. Down a long country road with nowhere to go, she knew that she had to leave. She hopped a one way train with the ticket to ride in the third class back with the others. She watched the farm fade away, just hoping and praying she'd have a better life than a mother's. It's a long, long. Thanks to Rhiannon Giddens. Thank you for being with us on Shiro's. Congratulations on You're the One. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on three years. Yes, That's exciting. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Thanks. Many thanks to Rhiannon Giddens for being with us. Her Grammy-nominated new album, You're the One, is available now on Nonesuch Records. Shiro's is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. Shiro's is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit shirosradio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the Shiro's shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and and review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening. Oh.